Outer space, the expanse that exists beyond Earth and between celestial bodies. For us, it's this mysterious, boundless, quiet place. Most of our understanding of space probably comes from movies, TV shows, and some of what we study in school. But for about 553 people on Earth, space represents their laboratory, workspace, and temporary living space. Today, I have the chance to speak to one of those people, Dr. Elena Ochoa, the first Hispanic woman to go to space and the first Hispanic director and second female director of the Johnson Space Center. On this episode, Dr. Ochoa and I will talk about why it's important to follow your passion, but also pay attention to what you're good at, not giving up easily and learning to reframe your approach after rejection, the importance of finding your team of cheerleaders, and dreaming big but also preparing to work hard. Hola, yo soy Andrea Márquez, and this is Latinx, a show brought to you by La Red Hispana and the Hispanic Communications Network for a new generation of Latinx. We're back for our third season. This season, we want to focus on empowering you to follow your passion and be smart about chasing your dreams while speaking to Latinx from all over de diferentes colores y sabores. Thank you for all of your support. Our community keeps growing, so make sure to join Latinx on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Latinx. You can also find out more on our website at wearelatinx.com. So uh, I grew up in Southern California in a suburb of San Diego. Um, my dad's parents were Mexican. Uh, but my dad was the youngest of 12 children, and by the time he was born, they had emigrated to the United States. So uh, he also grew up in, in Southern California. Uh, my mom w uh, grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, I would just say they were both really um, interested in education. Um, in particular, my mom was just always just really interested in learning things. Uh, my dad was able to get an appointment to the Naval Academy, so was able to get a college education without his family needing to pay for it. My mom didn't have the chance to go to college when she was younger, uh, but the whole time she was raising me and my four brothers and sisters, she would take uh, one college class a semester at our local university, San Diego State. So, uh, you know, she would talk about uh, her college classes and we would see her doing homework. And so higher education was just something that we sort of always thought about. And, um, and all five of us ended up uh, getting college degrees. My mother is very, very much into education. And I remember since I was little, she would go to programs at like Harvard and these schools and she'd bring me back backpacks and be like, <laughs> one day, you better get into one of these schools. <laughs> so I, and that's, that's really amazing that you got to see that in your, in your house. So what made you lean into engineering? Well, you know, that didn't happen until much later. Um, when I think about what I was interested in in high school, um, in general, I was a good student. I liked my classes. Uh, music was my big passion. And uh, you know, I played flute. I was first chair in the concert band. I was in the marching band. I played in the Civic Youth Orchestra of San Diego. And that was something I thought about in college too. Uh, but, you know, in the end decided that was probably better as a hobby than as a career. Uh, I didn't take much science at all in high school. 
only biology. I, for some reason, I just didn't think I was interested in it. I didn't really know any scientists or engineers. Um, the thing that really kind of saved me was that I did take a lot of math. I liked it. I did well in it. And uh, when I went off to college, I did continue to take a couple of math classes, finishing up the calculus series. And it was really toward the end of that that I you know, was talking to other students about what they were majoring in, why they were taking calculus. And I decided to uh, look into both engineering and physics because that's what a lot of these other math students were doing. So I went and talked to a couple of professors at San Diego State and um, the electrical engineering professor, unfortunately, um, was not at all enthusiastic about me joining his department. You know, he said, well, we had a woman come through here once, but you know, this is a really difficult course of study and I don't know that you'd really be interested in it, which is just kind of interesting given that I had set up an appointment to talk to him about <laughs> engineering. But uh, fortunately, I got a much different reception from the physics professor that I talked with. He was glad to hear I was interested in physics. He told me about different kinds of careers you could have if you me measured in physics, which was really important to me because I didn't really have any idea. And it's, it's really hard to think about, you know, pursuing a particular subject in school if you can't really picture, you know, where that takes you. And, uh, and then he did ask about my math background and I told him I was finishing up the calculus series. And he's like, well, that's great because you know, if you started into physics next semester, you'd already know the language and you could really focus on the concepts, whereas most students take those simultaneously. And, and sometimes, of course, that can mean that they struggle a little bit. So he said, I think you do really well. And, uh, you know, that's what started me down the physics path. I did read about your music background and that you took your flute to space with you in the discovery mission. <laughs> Um, so that's amazing that you had this passion and you weren't right off the bat interested in this, but it was something that kind of developed over time and you had no idea how to get into that world, which is something that a lot of our listeners, because most of our listeners are younger, we don't know what we want to be doing. We kind of have an idea broadly, sort of, kind of, and, and then we just kind of fall into a path and we keep following that, you just kind of said, okay, I'm good at math. So let's see where this takes me and kind of kept going. You did get a roadblock with your professor who was like, not super enthusiastic of having you on his team on in his classes. And I can't imagine that. I'm wondering what, even though you did live through this roadblock, what made you be like, I don't care what he says, I'm going to go knock on the next door. Well, you know, um, as I sort of look back through schooling and career, I occasionally did encounter roadblocks like that or people who clearly didn't see me in whatever role I was trying to pursue. And uh, I can say now, as I look back, that the people that were like that didn't know me at all, right? They didn't know anything about me. I just didn't fit their view of, you know, a scientist or an engineer or astronaut or, you know, whatever it was. Whereas fortunately I did find encouragement from other people, uh, you know, as I mentioned, the physics professor here, but, you know, um, fellow students and friends, obviously my mom, um, professors as I went on, uh, supervisors at work who were really encouraging. 
and they were people that knew me. So they, they saw that I brought the characteristics that are really important, which are like hard work, <laughs> you know, a dedication, um, you know, an interest or a passion in whatever I was trying to do. Um, and that I, I could work through issues, I could learn. Um, those are what, are what are important. And, you know, anybody can bring those. And um, I think always having those people who encouraged me, even though I occasionally ran into people who didn't, I think really helped a lot. And, and I'll be honest, you know, I, I, I did have a little bit of a reaction when people tell me I can't do things, even if it's something I don't know anything about and I don't even know if I want to do it. I'm just like, well, how can they say I can't do that? <laughs> I get a little bit indignant. <laughs> For me, it has taken a confidence level because I think when I was younger, whenever someone would tell me that, I'd be like, you're older and wiser. You're probably right. I'm just going to. And now I've turned a little bit more into that. So thankfully you had that early on. So once you were in the engineering path and I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about the technicalities of this, but I tried to understand it while reading and uh, preparing for this interview that you were already, even before you were an astronaut, you were already doing groundbreaking work because you helped create systems of methods that like recognize patterns along those lines. And I apologize for not knowing clearly what they, these are. I would like to know what inspired you to focus on this part of engineering. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so just kind of following up from what we already talked about. So I ended up taking physics classes and the, um, declaring physics as my major and uh, one of the things we have to do as a senior project is a, a research project where you spend probably a, a semester actually designing and collecting data and then another semester sort of writing it up um, as a research project. And I was still taking math classes because I ended up minoring in math. And one of the ones that I took, which was interesting to me, which was called Fourier transforms. And it's something that a lot of engineers use as they're analyzing electrical signals. And um, what I learned in that class was you can also think of them uh, in a two-dimensional way rather than just one-dimensional signals. And they can be used to actually analyze images. Um, and you can use optical equipment like lenses to, um, to assist you in doing that. And so I ended up I just thought it was interesting. <laughs> so I ended up, there was a new professor in the physics department who optics was his specialty. And so I said, I, you know, I'd like to follow along this line of inquiry, which people usually talk about as either optical data processing or optical image processing. And I'd like to do my research in that. And, um, and so that's what I did. And you, you could use, uh, like I said, lenses and other pieces of optical equipment to, uh, to either extract information from images or manipulate images to find things. And um, so I was using a, a particular system that could find something, uh, a defined uh, image, you know, in a larger image, a defined object in a larger image. And I decided that's what I wanted to pursue in graduate school. So I actually, only applied to schools that had an, an optics focus or a professor who was working in optical information processing. And that's really what took me from San Diego State to Stanford because the, the professor who wrote the book, they call it kind of the Bible on uh, 
Fourier optics, uh, you know, optical image processing, was a professor at Stanford, and I specifically visited him and talked about, you know, the possibility of, of becoming part of his research group, which worked out. That's exactly what ended up happening. Uh, so that's, that's kind of what led me into it. But this led to the patent, right? Right. Which right. is, and I'll explain this in post, but is a big deal. <laughs> So like I said, you're already doing incredible work even before you became an astronaut. The military selected the first astronauts in 1959. I believe there's a Disney series out right now called The Right Stuff, based on the first astronauts who were military personnel who had experience flying jet aircraft and also had backgrounds in engineering. Makes sense. In 1964, NASA began searching for scientists as well. But since then, there have been some changes in terms of what qualifications you must have to be an astronaut. So what does it take? According to the NASA website, to be considered, you must meet the following qualifications. One, be a US citizen. Two, have a master's degree in a STEM field, including engineering, biology, physical science, computer science, or mathematics. Three, have at least two years of related professional experience or at least 1,000 hours as a pilot in command time on jet aircraft, and four, be able to pass the NASA long-duration flight astronaut physical. Astronauts must also have skills in leadership, teamwork, and communications. More than 12,000 people applied to be an astronaut in 2020. What led you to become an astronaut and to join the mission on Discovery? Well, while, while I was a graduate student at Stanford, a lot changed in human space exploration. Near the end of my first year is when the space shuttle flew for the first time. Very different kind of spacecraft than it ever flown before. And uh, so NASA was talking about, we're gonna be using it, well, for a whole variety of things, but certainly to do research in space to actually take up laboratories in space and do experiments that you cannot do on earth. And because I was you know, headed toward being a research engineer, I thought that was fascinating. And a couple years later, after that first flight is when Sally Ride flew for the first time. So big deal, first American woman in space. And she had been a physics major like me. She'd gone to Stanford, which is where I currently was. And then I think a year and a half or so after she flew is when Franklin Chang Diaz flew, first uh, person of Hispanic background to be selected as a NASA astronaut and fly. So these changes were happening, right? Um, before the shuttle, you know, there were no women astronauts, there were no minority astronauts, and they really weren't doing R&D. And, and so all of this really opened my mind to that as a potential career. And so I decided that as soon as I finished my PhD, I'd send in my application to NASA. Was this like a dream to you? Did you think that this was like very far-fetched and there was no way? Or did you think that there, it was like a realistic thing that you could actually be accepted? Oh, I thought it was extremely far-fetched. <laughs> um, you know, obviously thousands of people apply, only a few right. are selected and they only select a class every three, four or five years, just whenever that, you know, they need some new people. Um, so yeah, I didn't really expect it, anything to ever come of it, but I was like, um, you know, in fact, I, I almost talked to myself out of even sending in an application because it, it just seemed like the odds were so low, but clearly there's zero if you never send in an application <laughs> and there wasn't really any downside to applying. 
Um, but I, I didn't, I wasn't like sitting back waiting for NASA. Um, I, you know, obviously most of my effort was spent looking for uh, a research position as I was finishing up at Stanford. And I ended up taking a, a research staff position at Sandia National Labs, which is a Department of Energy lab. And so um, I worked there, uh, oh, a year and a half, between a year and a half and two years. And uh, then NASA invited me to come to Johnson Space Center to interview for the astronaut program, which was hugely exciting. Uh, but I wasn't selected that year. They, they did select a class that year in 1987 and, and I wasn't selected. But I, I did, it was you know, my first chance to go to Johnson Space Center to talk to actual astronauts, find out more about the job. I was more excited than ever about you know, trying to uh, get to be, being selected at some point. And I realized one of the things that I didn't really have was any operational experience. So that really spurred me to get a private pilot's license. And I also decided I wanted to work for NASA, even if I was never selected as an astronaut, I just wanted to be part of, of their mission. So I ended up moving to one of NASA's research centers, Ames Research Center um, in uh, the Bay Area in California, uh, as a first, as a, again, as a research staff member and then shortly afterwards, I became a supervisor of a research group there. And three years later, or I guess it was, um, yeah, it was about uh, three years later, they did the next selection and I got to interview again and I was selected that time. We have dreams, we have these like far-fetched ideas and a lot of us just like give up after the first try if we're told no. You didn't just reapply, you were like, okay, so you want this. And you went and you moved, you changed careers. If you, well, not careers, but you found a specific job that would let you improve on a certain aspect that you knew that they wanted to see. And so you were in space for four missions, right? And what does that preparation look like? Well, uh, you know, there's different phases of training. Uh, when I was first selected, I would, we get selected in groups. So uh, there were 22 other people selected at the same time. And really the first year that we're there, we're all in training together, pretty much all, all at the same time. And uh, different kinds of training. A lot of it uh, is uh, very much like school. You know, we got handed a stack of workbooks that were this tall um, to read through and learn about the shuttle systems. We got lectures. Um, and that was all pretty familiar to me. I mean, I'd spent 10 years in college and so, you know, I knew how to do that. <laughs> um, but then there was a lot of training that was pretty new to me. Um, you know, we learned to fly in high performance aircraft. Uh, we have to be prepared to uh, bail out of aircraft in an emergency as well as uh, bail out of the shuttle in an emergency. So we, you know, we had some, got a little bit of information on um, and experience on landing under a parachute with on land and in water and being picked up by a Coast Guard helicopter and uh, some things like that, which of course were pretty familiar to some of my fellow um, uh, astronaut uh, in my class who had been in the military and this was things that they were very familiar with, um, but which I didn't have any background in. But fortunately the idea was, hey, you know, we're trying to train you to survive in emergency situations. And it's important that you learn that and we're gonna help you. We're gonna help you learn it. It wasn't, it wasn't like something that they're trying to wash you out of or anything like that. 
So pretty interesting. After one year, we get we continue with certain types of training, um, but we also get assigned jobs in the office that supported the ongoing shuttle program. And then after a second year, I was assigned to a mission and then spent about a year training for that. Maybe it wasn't full-time training at first, um, but certainly within six months, maybe even eight months of the mission really turned uh, attention full-time to training. And you get assigned different jobs on a shuttle mission. Um, so I was on the flight deck during launch. And so we have many different um, launch, we call them ascent and entry uh, uh, simulations, training sessions. And, and of course, a lot of it is how do you deal with failures of different kinds of equipment? How do you work together as a team, um, both in the shuttle cockpit, as well as with the, with the crew on the ground to overcome failures? Um, and then I was one of two people who was in charge of the science instruments that we had because it was an atmospheric research flight. And then I was also the prime arm operator, the robotic arm operator. So I had a lot of training on the robot arm and we were going to be deploying a science satellite into orbit and then coming back a couple of days later and um, grabbing it with the arm and, and then putting it back in the payload bay. So you have you know, different kinds of training sessions for all these different roles. In 1950, NASA selected Franklin Chang Diaz, their first Hispanic astronaut. Since then, there have been 12 Hispanic astronauts at NASA. You have gained the title of the first Hispanic woman to go to space. What does being a woman and a Hispanic represent to you? Well, for me, it really gave me a platform to talk to people all around the country and, and primarily, of course, students and students of Hispanic background or young girls. So I got lots of invitations to come speak at schools, usually of high Hispanic background. And uh, th that was, you know, I, I, every astronaut gets the opportunity to talk at schools. So that wasn't unusual. But um, certainly when you think about groups that are not well represented in the STEM fields, um, weren't as well represented in the astronaut corps as others. This was really an opportunity to, to reach out and do that. And, um, you know, my first flight was in 1993, but, you know, I continue to talk to groups to this day. So I've had many, many years of experience, but, but really it's just to me, the opportunity uh, to talk about it and, and the importance of education. I have six schools named after me. I've gotten to be at the dedication of each of these schools. And uh, you know, I had a chance then to talk to the student body on a couple of schools. I've gotten to go back more than one time, and uh, and really, you know, to meet uh, the dedicated teachers and staff at these schools. I mean, they're the ones working with the students day in and day out, um, and it's always really impressive to meet them and see how dedicated they are to to their students. Uh, but the chance to to give a bit of a message is also uh, just really rewarding. We've talked a lot about this, about how you were set on a path and regardless of the roadblocks, you kept going. So through all the inspiring and inspirational things that you were able to do and you keep doing, apart from also being the first Hispanic director of the Johnson Space Center, what is one thing that kept you motivated? Well, I don't think it's hard to be motivated when you work at NASA, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, we have a wonderful mission, whether it's human spaceflight or some of the science or aeronautics, you know, 
we're trying to expand knowledge and we're developing new technologies, which we may want to use for our missions, but in general also have applications in many other areas. And so affect people really all across the country, all across the world. And, and we get to engage globally. You know, a big part of my career was spent uh, in some way, either helping to, you know, design, operate, um, build the International Space Station. And NASA also provides a lot of inspiration to people. Um, and not just in the US, but, you know, honestly, around the world. So, so I, I never really had a problem with motivation. And, you know, that was one of the things um, that I used to think about when I was director of Johnson Space Center, too. Sometimes I'd be in, in in forums with people who headed other organizations, could be businesses, could be anything. And we'd get the question, you know, I'd be on a panel, we'd get the question about how do you motivate your employees? And I'm like, that is not something I have problem with. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of other things I, I need to think about and work on and work with my leadership team on. But people are at NASA because they want to be there and they really believe in the mission. And so, you know, part of my job was just to make sure they felt part of the mission. As always, Ariel, our wonderful producer at Latinx, is always present in these interviews with me. And he had a question of his own. What is what can we do or what resources are out there for for the younger generation, Gen Z or people that are in high school, you know, to get interested in, in STEM programs so that we can have a bigger representation of Latinos, you know, in these missions such as the ones that you were yourself or or in research projects and stuff like that. You know, there are a number of groups out there that reach out to um, students who are underrepresented in some way, you know, uh, whether it's racial, ethnicity or gender, um, just aren't well represented in STEM. And I hate to mention just one because there's so many and I've had the chance to talk to a number of them. Uh, but whenever a school can sort of um, form a kind of partnership with these organizations that are already out there, Generally, what the organizations have tried to do is let's let's figure out how we get some hands-on activities to students you know, by the time they're in middle school. Because as you move, of course, from middle school to high school, you then have the opportunity to decide uh, what kinds of classes you're taking in high school. Some are required, but you do have that opportunity to uh, select. And unfortunately, that's when a lot of people select out, right? They don't continue in math or they don't continue in science because, you know, they just don't see what that means for their future. Uh, if they've had the chance to do some hands-on activity, and by that I mean even coding as well, it doesn't necessarily need to be hardware, uh, it can be software, uh, but about something they're interested in. Um, I think that really motivates them in high school. And I think the other big thing is some kind of mentoring program. Um, because again, if you have somebody who can, you know, talk to you about uh, careers, talk to you about um, how, how science and engineering might intersect with other interests that you have, um, then I think you're much more likely to do it. And I will mention that NASA has a lot of resources online for, for students, for parents, for teachers, and um, uh, they've been working, you know, this year during the pandemic to, to think about what kinds of um, articles that people may already have in their homes that they can use to um, demonstrate different kinds of, you know, scientific principles or ways that they, that they can contribute to some kind of, you know, ongoing research program. 
And um, I'm also uh, associated with the National Science Board, which governs the National Science Foundation. And they've also provided resources um, for students, parents, and teachers um, of ideas of you know, science, either projects or something that uh, students can do at home. One of the things you touched on is mentorship. What does mentorship look like to you now that you've, you have so much experience and are at the top of your career? Well, first of all, when I was, say, at my point in my career that you are in yours, I kind of had that same idea like, well, I can't be a mentor. I, you know, I, I, I don't know enough yet. You, you know, you've got to have many, many more years of experience. But yet I have met many college students who mentor high school students and high school students who mentor middle school students. And the thing is, you actually have really relevant experience. You can talk about how you approached college, what you learned about succeeding in college to students in high school that for them is something that is just a kind of a big black box, right? They don't really know what that college experience is. And they, you know, they may feel very comfortable asking you questions, but they may not feel comfortable asking somebody who's, you know, been in the workforce for 30 years, you know. Um, and so actually, you know, you can play that role as a mentor, really as a leader, you know, at, at almost any point in your career. But it's really, you know, with experiences that either of us have, um, we have the ability to say, well, here's, here's what's important in succeeding. And a lot of it is, is hard work. Um, you know, what, what did you do when you had, um, when you were running into problems as a college student? You know, did you um, go to your professor's office hours and take advantage of that? Did you join any student groups? Um, like for me, I wasn't really aware of them when I was in college, but now I know of all these um, student chapters of the Society of Hispanic Professional Engineers or the Society of Women Engineers. And that's kind of really a way in college to meet up with other people who may be more like you and, and, and trying to succeed in the same way that you are doing, who can kind of um, you know, be a support group for you. And, and those are the kind of resources that you might not know about in, unless somebody tells you about them. So being able to answer questions and, you know, just provide tips like that, I think is a, a really important role that mentors can do. What would be your advice to young professionals? Well, you know, uh, one of the things that I would say is um, set high goals for yourself. You know, um, you may not always meet them. You know, I, as, as I was talking earlier, I never really expected to be selected as an astronaut. But the things that I did that I thought would put me in a better position, you know, also got me a job that I really enjoyed doing research at a NASA research center. Um, I got a private pilot's license, which allowed me to, you know, start flying places. And those are all things that, you know, sort of enriched my life and got me to a position that I wouldn't otherwise have been in. Um, and so even if I hadn't been selected, it, they, they were, good things to do, good choices to make. And, and so don't be afraid to, to set that high goal and think about the steps that you can take to get there. And you know, you will achieve things that you otherwise wouldn't have without um, having done that. And then, as I said, 
you know, make sure you find those people who are supporters of you, who encourage you. Um, again, you'll, you'll run into some people that um, may be on the opposite end of the scale who, are, who um, you know, just either don't think you can achieve something or don't see you in a particular role. Um, but look for those people who, who know you, who know what you can bring. Uh, and, uh, and, and let those people be kind of your sounding boards and your, your cheering section. Before this interview, I put on my Instagram that I was going to be interviewing you. So if my followers had any questions and I got an array of very interesting <laughs> questions, all having to do with space. And one of them did catch my attention um, because I was genuinely wondering this myself. Okay. which is, did you ever feel imposter syndrome? I, I wouldn't have put it exactly that way, although I understand that. And there were certainly times when I wondered if I would be able to do what I needed to do. And I already talked a little bit about that in some of the training where now I'm flying in high performance jets and learning how to land under a parachute. And I literally never pictured myself doing any of those things. I mean, I wasn't even a Girl Scout, right? And and, and of course I wondered like, gosh, the, you know, this is so out of my uh, comfort zone. Um, but, you know, fortunately there were people there to say, hey, we're gonna show you what you need to learn to be able to do this, to be able to survive under these emergency situations. And then as I went through astronaut training, like let's say on the robotic arm, uh, you know, First of all, I had spent a lot of time in school. It's about learning something new. And I was like, I know how to learn stuff, <laughs> you know? I mean, I've never operated a robotic arm before, but I, I know how to learn. I know how to ask questions and I know how to study. And, and those were the things that I applied to, to new things. So I just felt like, well, I have a reasonable chance of being able to do well at this. And, and I'm really going to work hard and I'm going to work hard to do my best at it. And so, you know, those were the things I brought to anything new, even if I originally wondered, like, I have no idea if I'm going to be any good at this at all. <laughs> Is there anything else you would like to say? Sure. Well, first of all, I am on Twitter. So, uh, so my Twitter handle is um, Astro underscore Ellen. And, um, you know, I, I use it as a way to still inform people about what's going on at NASA. Um, but also a few other, of the other activities that I'm involved in. I do have a website, uh, ellenochoa.space. And um, so that tells a little bit more about me, um, uh, uh, some of the upcoming events that I'm speaking at, uh, some of the other activities I do, and it collects some of the news stories and things like that um, about me. Um, but also, if you're just interested in, in human spaceflight in general, you know, NASA is really good on social media. They're, you know, they're all over Twitter and Facebook um, and Instagram. And so you can follow along with our astronauts who are currently in space on the International Space Station, as well as a, a variety of exciting, you know, science uh, missions. You know, we have a spacecraft on the way to Mars right now that's going to... Um, uh, land uh, a rover and then collect samples that we hope uh, later in the decade will be sent back to Earth. So lots of exciting things to follow along there for those people who are interested. 
I would just say, you know, we need you in, in STEM. You know, we, we don't have enough women. We don't have enough Hispanics and people um, who are otherwise underrepresented. Uh, we need your brains. We need your curiosity, your creativity, your enthusiasm. So we'd really encourage people to uh, explore different kinds of careers in those areas. I'm even motivated. I remember once there was a job um, on LinkedIn for like communications manager or something at NASA. And I considered it because I was like, wouldn't it be awesome to work there regardless of what I'm doing? Just be able to like walk into the building and, you know, meet astronauts because as a communications manager, I'm supposing you do meet them, right? Yeah, I work um, with our communications folks. Uh-huh. So yeah, guys work for NASA, women <laughs> who are good at STEM yeah. or not and are just inspired by doing it. Well, you, you make a good point that I didn't really point out, but there are a lot of people that work at NASA who are not scientists and engineers, right? They're communications people, they're lawyers, they work in our procurement department, they you know, work in human resources, but nothing happens without these folks. Um, it, take, it takes everyone to, to really um, accomplish NASA's missions. So um, even if you're not a scientist or engineer, uh, I would encourage you to to follow along with, with the kinds of folks that NASA wants to have. I'm so honored to have had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Elena Ochoa on our first episode on season three of Latinx. Remember to support us by rating this podcast on Apple Podcasts. As you know, this will help us continue to work on the show and bring on guests who inspire you and motivate you. This is Latinx. I'm your host, Andrea Marquez, Thank you for listening.